your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Something special about reading 1 Corinthians 13 with that accent, huh? That's good. I love it. Praise God. Well, it's the classic romantic story you've probably heard, you've probably watched on movies. A guy and a girl are attracted to each other. The girl is cute. The guy is a hunk. There's an instant infatuation, a romantic allurement, but there's an obstacle. Maybe the parents don't want them to be together. Maybe there's a social barrier. Maybe there's a secret or a misunderstanding. Or maybe there's just some other type of problem that's preventing them from getting together. But the emotional attraction is so strong, they just can't help but be drawn together. The hormones are raging, the desire builds, the longing for mutual partnership intensifies. And then finally, the obstacles are overcome, the guy and the girl succumb to their passions. That's pretty much the plot line for every romantic movie in Hollywood right there. It's the plot for Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, The Notebook, Romeo, Juliet. I could go on. Those are just some of the top ones I saw, top movies. In the American culture, we call that love. But it's a worldly type of love. It's a love that's full of lust. It's a love that gets for itself. The world's idea of love is it's an infatuation with another person or it's an emotion that, that makes me feel better. It's something you fall into. It's controlled by the passions of my hormones. That's the world's idea of love. The Greeks had a word for love that was sensual, that was merely physical. It was eros. The world has a different type of love than God's love. And we saw last week that God's love is different. God's love is the opposite. God's love is sacrificial. God's love gives. God's love is based upon a commitment, not based upon emotion. God's love is certain. In the Greek, the New Testament word use of this kind of love is agape. This is the word, the Greek word used here in 1 Corinthians 13 for love, agape. This is a love that desires the good of another, even willing to deny oneself to accomplish that. Agape love is who God is. God is love. Agape love is how God continually acts. God manifested his love towards us by sending his son into the world so that we might live through him. God offers his love to us. And we, if we receive his love in faith, the Bible says that his love can abide in you through the redemptive work of Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when God's love abides in us, when we love like God 
loves, then we are able to display God's love to the world. God's love within us makes us able to love, but also God's love is what we're called, how we're called to live. We are to love. Last week we saw that 1 Corinthians 13 teaches that love must be your most important priority. That's what this chapter is teaching about. Paul wrote this to a a local church, a church that was fighting, a church that was dividing, a church that was competitive, a church that was unloving. And, And Paul taught them that what matters most in the local church is love. Therefore, love must be your most important priority. In fact, look down in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 31. This introduces this chapter. Really, I think the last sentence should be in chapter 13. Or, yeah, chapter 13. So notice the end of verse 31. And I will show you a still more excellent way. This is the best way to live. This is the most important priority of your life. And what is that? Well, that's chapter 13. It's the way of love. Agape love must be your most important priority. And last week we saw that it's because love gives life and ministry value. That's verses 1 through 3. Life is not about getting to the top. It's not an accumulation of things. Even ministry is not about just being busy and doing things. It's not about utilizing your gifts. Church here is not about programs and buildings and organizational structures. Life and ministry and church is about loving God and loving each other. That's what God wants us to do. It must be our most important Priority. That's what verses 1 through 3 teach. And then in verses 4 through 7, we're going to see here today that love must be your most important priority because love edifies. Love is what benefits the church. It's what builds up the church. Verses 4 through 7 describe what this agape love is like and how it can affect our relationships and our ministries And so what is it like? What is agape love like? Well, it's active. It it actively edifies. It's directed toward the good of another person. So notice down in verse 4. Notice verse 4. Love is a noun that results in verbs. In other words, genuine love starts from within. It starts with a relationship with God. It starts with a person who genuinely loves God and therefore that results in action to love those around you. So verse 4, love, that's a noun, love is. And then Paul writes 15 verbs that demonstrate the action of love. Now someone might argue, look at, as they look at all these verbs here, they might argue that, that love is not just action. Love is not just doing stuff, and that's true. That was the point of verses 1 through 3. Just because you have gifts, just because you're busy doing ministry and helping people, doesn't mean you love. So verses 4 through 7 tell us that love is, yes, action, 
And it comes from this sincere desire to benefit others. Love is an attitude. Love is an affection for someone else. And love results in action towards that individual, those individuals. Love is an enduring desire for another's good that denies self and always seeks to benefit the other person. Now, I don't think verses 4 through 7 actually give us a definition of love. It's more of a description with various verbs that relay what love does and what love does not do. However, you can see on the screen there that I have attempted to summarize verses 4 through 7 with my own definition of love. And I think it will help us to categorize these verbs. And so here's my definition of agape love from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is an enduring desire for another's good that denies self and always seeks to benefit the other person. Someone might have a better definition than that. That's just the one I came up with. But I want to show you that I'm trying to uh, define it like that to help us categorize these different aspects of love. The first two verbs, look down in verse 4, the first two verbs, love is, number one, patient, and then number two, kind. Those are two verbs that really govern the rest of the verbs, Patience and kindness establish the disposition of the heart. This is love's attitude. So love is an enduring desire for the good of another person. Then the next nine verbs describe how love denies oneself for the good of another person. So there are things that love does not do and will not do. That's self-denial. Notice verse number four. Love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So that's self-denial, I won't do this, I will not do this. Then the last four verbs are action verbs that describe what love always does, how love always responds These are love's universal responses. So you can see that in verse number seven. Love always seeks to benefit the other person. So verse seven, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So again, that's why I'm saying love is an enduring desire for another's good, which denies self and always seeks to benefit the other person. So this morning, we're just going to deal with the first two verbs, and that is the idea that love is an enduring desire for the good of another person. Love is patient. Love is kind. In fact, if you look at verse 4, you look at those two verbs here, I think these two verbs are like two rails on a railroad tract, and the two verbs guide the rest of the verbs in verses 4 through 7. Patience and kindness are like two verbs that the engine of agape love moves forward on. This is the disposition, the attitude of love. So let's first look at patience. Love is patient. The New King James translates this word, suffers long, or it also could be translated 
long-suffering, which I actually think is probably a better rendering of this word. It helps us understand what this word means when we say long-suffering or suffers long. We often think of patience as waiting at waiting under difficult circumstances. So it's, you know, like you're sitting at a red light and the light goes on for 30 seconds and for a minute and then two minutes and you're thinking, I'm losing my patience, right? And there is a word, that type of word, that word is in the New Testament. In fact, if you look in verse 7, you can see that word endure, which is hupomeno, which is remaining under. So that does carry that word, the idea right there. This is a different word for patience. This is really one that deals with long-suffering with people. Almost every time this word in verse 4 for patience is used in the New Testament, it's used of someone enduring the difficulties that another person has caused them. So so instead of waiting in a car for the the light to turn uh, green, this is more like sitting in a car and you have a baby crying in the back. A six-year-old is singing at the top of her lungs. Your wife is trying to tell you that your mother-in-law didn't think your joke was very funny. And you want to listen to your favorite podcast. And so suffering long is probably turning off your podcast. It's calmly telling your six-year-old to sing quieter and then listening to your spouse. The word for long-suffering here. Is, is speaking of suffering uh, for a, a, being, under, or being under the difficulty of something, of another relationship, and bearing through that. Long-suffering, this word helps us to understand that the problems we face are with people. Many times people can be prickly. They can nag. They can complain. They can criticize They can sin against us. And so what this word long-suffering is telling us is that it's teaching us that love doesn't react. Love acts with long-suffering. Love doesn't punch back. Love turns the other cheek. In other words, it's long-suffering. The word here used here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, is also used in 1 Thessalonians 5, 14. Notice where this word is used. I'll read it. It's on the screen up here as well. As we urge you, brothers, this is speaking to believers, and interesting enough, Paul probably wrote this from Corinth. So he probably had some people in mind in Corinth, and we know what the church in Corinth was like. He says, I urge you, brothers, admonish the idle." Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient, that's this word, long-suffering, suffer long with them all. So these are people in the church with problems, and he says, suffer long with them all. So look at that on the screen there, the idol. The idol are lazy people in the church. These are the people who are the consumers, but they're not the servers. And so you spend hours preparing for something, maybe a lesson or an event or something like that, and they don't show up. Or maybe they do show up, but they criticize everything. And so what are you supposed to do? 
Well, he says admonish them, so there's something we can do, but he says to do it with patience, with long-suffering. That means you give them grace to grow. You don't give up on them. You keep serving them. You're patient with the faint-hearted. This is those who are discouraged, those who are sad. Maybe they had a loved one that has just passed away. Maybe their business is failing or something else is going on in their life that's making them very sad. And sometimes it's difficult to come alongside of individuals like this because, because we have our own problems, right? And sometimes their problems can almost be like a, a chain about our neck that, that pulls us down and we can feel like avoiding that person or that problem. But he says here, be patient with them. Keep encouraging them. Keep building them up. Or how about help the weak? The weak are, are those who are the, the needy. In, in Mark 6, it talks about Jesus helping those who were weak. Remember Jesus and his disciples, they, in Mark 6, they had a, uh, a time of ministry and they were very tired and they said, okay, let's get in the boat and let's go to the other side. Let's, let's go on our vacation, if you will. And so they get in the boat and they're tired and they're going to the other side. And they make it to the other side and the people ran around the lake to the other side. And they're like, hey, we're ready for more ministry, but they're tired. And the Bible says that Jesus looked at them and he had compassion, which means that he loved them. And how did he show his love? Go home, everyone. Is that what he said? No, he stood up and began to teach them. And the disciples are like, it's getting late. Let's send them home. Let's get this done with. And Jesus says, I think they're hungry. Let's feed them. And friends, that's the feeding of the 5,000. So that was done in the midst of Jesus being tired. And here he saw weak people around him, people that were lost. They needed a shepherd and he had long suffering. Love looks like suffering long. Jesus ministered with a long fuse of love. His Greek word for patience here is makroth umeo. Makroth umeo. Macro is long, thuma, thumia is to burn or hot. So it's the idea that you're able to be under the heat for a long time, but you don't get hot yourself. So you're able to be under the heat for a long time, the heat of someone else's problems for a long time, but you don't get hot yourself. It's staying calm when others are not calm. Suffering long is... Finding the dishes have been left out in the living room for the hundredth time. And you've told them, please put the dishes away if you're going to use them. And they are still out. The heat of someone else's constant negligence, though, doesn't cause you to be hot with sinful anger. That's long-suffering. Or are kids in here? Long-suffering is when a, a sibling intentionally picks at you, throws little balls of fire. They're wanting to light you up with their fiery comments, but you don't respond with fighting fire with fire. You respond with long-suffering. In the church, suffering long is using your gifts, sometimes with maybe a person who doesn't appreciate them. 
And so you endure the burn of their sin without responding by burning them back with your own sin. Church, why in the world would we extend this type of long-suffering to people, especially to people who are sinning against us? Why would we do this? What's the answer? It's because God is long-suffering. This is who God is. 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. So he he promises he's going to come back, but is patient toward you. God is patient. He's long-suffering, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Notice he says, he's patient toward you. You sin, and he's patient. He convicts. You confess, and he forgives. You stray, and he disciplines in love. He's patient toward you. And just think about God's constant love for you. His desire for you is that you would continue to turn from your sin and turn back to him and trust him. And just think about how often we sin every day and how patient God is with us. I mean, even in in this past hour, maybe even in the past half, and think about something else. You might, you might covet or have an angry thought about someone or you might lust or your mind just might be distracted. You might be like, oh, I think I want to go to Facebook or social media and go on there or maybe what's going on tomorrow and what, what are my lists for work tomorrow or what do I need to get to the grocery store? And we can, we can have our mind go away from focusing on worshiping Christ. How often do we sin and even just the smallest of ways and yet the Lord is patient with us. I mean, if the Lord was not patient with us, frankly, friends, by the time I was done with the sermon, every one of us would be in hell right now. Because the Lord is patient. He's long-suffering. I think about the patience of a missionary named John Patton. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands. For 15 years, John Patton labored in an area on an island that was only about a dozen miles No one responded to the gospel within those first 15 years. After that, he had someone come to Christ and he stayed even longer on that island ministering. But for those years, the indigenous people would barge into Patton's home. They would steal his stuff. They would threaten to kill him. He faced the difficulty of disease and just of the constant cultural clash And he suffered long with those people. Why? Because he loved them. And he wanted to see them come to Christ. And eventually they did. One by one, they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. It took patience. And the truth is, that's what real ministry takes. It's long suffering. It's suffering long. And you say, Pastor Ben, how do you know that? Because that's how God ministers to us. God every day gives and provides and waits for us to come to him. I think about Romans 2, 4. 
Do you presume on the riches of his kindness in forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Notice God's patience and then his kindness. God is patient with us. How is it possible that we can have this type of long suffering? Maybe even I should ask, is it even possible? Well, you know what the answer is? Actually, no. Well, that's kind of a depressing answer, isn't it? It's not possible if you just try to get up tomorrow morning and do it in your own strength. Galatians 5 says it's only possible when you're walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. Walk in the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit will be love, joy, peace, patience. There it is, patience and kindness. So first, we see that love is an enduring desire. It's enduring, it's patient. It's an enduring desire for another's good. Notice verse 4, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is kind. The Greek word for kindness is translated in other places as easy. Matthew eleven thirty, Jesus says, come to me for my yoke is easy. First Peter 2, 3, it's translated as good. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So it's kindness is it's easy. It's what's good. It's that he gives what is best. It's the idea of what is useful, what is helpful for the situation. Imagine a large puzzle on a table in front of you and all the pieces are, have been perfectly put in there and there's right in the middle an empty space and you have a piece of a puzzle and you take that and you set it down in there and it just slides right in. It, it fits right in place. It, it, it fits right where it needs to go. And that's the idea of kindness. It, it's, it's easy. It's not forced. It, it fits the situation. It's what's best for the other person. Charles Hodge wrote of this word, kindness is good-natured. The root of the Greek verb means useful. It means to be disposed to be useful, disposed to do Good. So, so kindness is doing what is best for that situation. So kindness might be you going to the home of someone else and you walk into their home and you notice there's some shoes there and you realize that maybe they're a, a take your shoes off kind of house and you don't take your shoes off in the house, but you take your shoes off in their house. And why is that? Because it's what's fitting for the situation. It's what they desire. It's kind. Kindness is acting appropriately within the situation. In college, I traveled for a couple of teams, a couple of evangelistic teams. And before uh, we went out, they would make us take an etiquette class. So there was this lady who was 150 years old. Not really, but she uh, had us come to this dining room. And she put out plates in front of us. And so it had this, my plate had a big piece of chicken on it, some peas and corn. And she stacked that thing. I mean, she stacked everything against us, okay? And so 
obviously I was the one who had the fork and the knife and I slipped as I was cutting the chicken, I slipped and hit the peas and it really hard and the peas went everywhere on the table. So I, I failed. But the reason they did that for us is because we were staying in other people's homes. And it wasn't that they wanted us to go to people's homes and be all, you know, proper with like the British pinky finger in the air, you know, as we had our tea. It wasn't that. It's they wanted us to, they wanted to teach us to act appropriately in people's homes. To, to know how to be, if you could say this way, be kind at the dinner table in the living room. And so they had us practice saying, please. And thank you. They pointed out when we didn't wait our turn or when we weren't aware of the needs of other people at the table. And she taught us, one of the things she taught us in that was to have conversation. And and part of the conversation was to ask other people questions. Don't talk about yourself all the time. Or don't sit there and wait for people just to talk to you. I travel with many other guys, individuals, girls, guys, both genders and And there were times when there were guys or girls at the table and they didn't know how to carry on a conversation. They would just stare forward. And so there's a whole family or people around and they're just standing there. And unless someone talks to them, they couldn't talk to anybody else. And it was interesting. I remember this lady speaking. I don't remember exactly what she said. But one of the things she taught us is that when you're at a table and you don't take an interest in someone else and maybe you don't ask them questions, you don't take an interest in their life, you're actually being selfish. It's actually rude. It's actually not kind. In other words, kindness is, is knowing what fits this situation. What's, what's good for other people? When I was growing up, my parents, which are, they're listening right now, so they could verify this, but they would uh, have us learn manners at the table. And uh, we would often do it without having, at least I remember a couple of times, I don't know how often, get a, they, they check me for, for truth on things. So, you know, they will call me up and tell me, well, I don't know if you got that exactly right. But anyways, this one's true. We wouldn't have any food on the table, and they would just have us sit down, and we would practice our manners. It was really practicing being kind with people, right? It was what's appropriate for the situation. It was keep your mouth closed when you're chewing your food. It was when there are adults at the table, children, you're not to be speaking, right? You know what's appropriate for the situation. And the point is here, kindness is knowing what fits at the right time. Kindness Opens your eyes to the needs of other people around you. On Sunday mornings, kindness means that we come in here and we look around and we we see that visitor who's looking to see where to go and they maybe have some children and you say, what's best for that person? And you step up and maybe direct that person down to the children's class, show them where the bathroom is. That's a very important one. Kindness sometimes means that you are sitting in your seat and you're in your favorite seat, the seat you never move from, and they're looking for a seat and you get up and you move so they can have a seat. Kindness during the week is texting maybe someone to say, I'm praying for you. And kindness should extend to our families, to our community. Kids in here, kindness means that maybe at the end of the day, You recognize that your mom's had a really hard, long day, and you volunteer to clean up the kitchen for her. Like like you can perceive what's good and easy for her, so you step in to help. Now, someone might say in here, you know what, Pastor Ben, I'm so glad you're talking about kindness. 
I really need someone to be kind to me. And that's good. We all need that. But let me encourage you to get your eyes off of yourself and onto the kindness of the Lord and, and being kind to other people. I read this past week a really interesting study that was done about kindness, a secular book called The Five Side Effects of Kindness. This is what this study said. Listen to this. This study discovered being kind boosts the production of the feel-good hormones, serotonin and dopamine, which gives feelings of satisfaction and well-being and activate the pleasure and reward areas in the brain of the givers and receivers. Endorphins, the body's natural painkiller, can also be released and contribute to a helper's high. So when you're kind to people, it gives you like a biological high. So if you're sad and you're depressed, instead of picking up the ice cream and watching a movie, maybe you should go out and show some kindness. Maybe go buy some flowers for someone in the church. Go knock on their door and, and give them those flowers and say, I was thinking about you. Maybe, maybe you can find someone and invite them to go to the Cheesecake Factory with you. You're like, that's expensive. Okay, how about McDonald's? And that's actually still pretty expensive, but <laughs> no more dollar menu anymore. It's like the 1990s right there. Kindness might be writing a letter to our missionaries and telling them you're praying for them. And, and why? Be kind. Well, let me give you a little hint. It's going to be the same answer every time. Because God is kind. Luke chapter 6, verse 34. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners. That's how people in the world, sinners lend even sinners lend sinners to get back the same amount. Most people keep score. They do something for someone else and expect something in return. God says, though, that's not my kind of love. That's how the world views love. It's, it's give so I can get. But God's kind of love is saying, I give and don't expect anything in return. Now, who really does that? Really? I mean, come on. You know who does? God. That's why he says in verse 35, but love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. In other words, this is what the sons and daughters of God look like. They act like God, because he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. The sun is shining right now, and it's shining on us. Well, we're inside, but it's shining on us. It's shining on people all around California. There's some people that hate God, but yet God is still kind to give them that sunshine. God is kind to give them that life. God is so kind to give them even the pleasure of eating food and they can eat a piece of food and in their mind think God is so unkind. And you know what? God continues to be kind to that person. God is so kind. Ephesians chapter four says that we are to have the same kindness. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. We are to forgive. We are to be kind in the way that God has showed kindness to us. Jesus was the kindest man 
whoever lived. He's God, so he is kind. He's also man, and he lived as a very, very kind man. Matthew chapter 8 says that Jesus came down from the mountain. He was tired again. He was worn out. There was a leper, and the leper cried out, and he says, Lord, if you're willing, cleanse me. You can cleanse me. And Jesus came over to him. And Jesus says, I am willing, be cleansed. And Jesus touched him. And that was an act of kindness. Think about that man. This man would have not received the human touch in years. And so Jesus, to show kindness, touches him. And John 4, he passed through Samaria. And he passed by a woman who was a five-time divorced woman. She was a habitual adulterer. She was living with a man who wasn't even her husband. She was an outcast. She was the lowest you can get in society. And yet Jesus sat down, he talked to her, and he talked to her with kindness, so much so that he led her away from her sin into himself, the Savior. Jesus was kind. Jesus was kind to Judas, I mean, Judas the betrayer, Jesus said, someone's going to betray me. He knew who it was. And yet Jesus got down at the feet of Judas and he cleaned the grime out of his toes. Jesus, while he was on the cross, he was kind. He was kind to his mother. He, he told John, John, take care of my mother. He, he was kind to his mother. He was kind to the people around him. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus had an attitude and a desire to do good to others. Again, is it possible that we are able to do that? Not in our own self-determination. But Jesus, he showed us how to be kind and how to love. And he's given us the gift of his Holy Spirit to enable us to love in this way. And as we walk with him, as we submit our hearts and lives to the Holy Spirit, his kindness can come through us to other people. There's a woman named Miss Butterfield. I think her name is Rosa Butterfield. She was a committed lesbian. And later on, she came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so today she's a committed Christian. But before she was a believer in Christ, she wrote in a local newspaper an article about a Christian evangelical organization. And her view of Christians was that they were poor thinkers, they were judgmental, they were afraid of diversity, afraid of opposing opinions. So she wrote this article, she started to receive letters. She got two boxes. She had one box that was for the people who basically was the hate mail, and she had the fan mail. So she'd get her letters, and she put them in each one of them. And then she received a letter from a local pastor. It was a two-page letter, and she read the letter, and it was kind. She actually says this, quote, It was kind and inquiring. She, she realized it had a warmth and a civility to it. It was, it was thoughtful. It was probing. But yet she says this, it was the kindest letter of opposition that I ever received. And she had the letter in her hand and she didn't know if she should put it in the hate mail box or the fan mail box. So she didn't do either one. She just put it on the desk there. 
and it caused her to eventually contact the pastor. She became friends with that pastor and his wife. He showed kindness to her, and God used that to lead her to Christ. Because there was someone who showed the kindness of Jesus Christ. And friends, this is what God has given to us. He is kind. He is patient. And if you're in here without Jesus Christ, he is even extending patience to you right now. But there will be a day when his patience will run out. If you die tonight in your sins, his patience is done. If he comes back and you are still in your sins and you stand before him, his patience will run out. And so right now, his plea to you is to turn to him, to repent, to confess that you're going the wrong way, and to turn to Jesus Christ. In church, God has saved us. He loves us, and he continues to show kindness and patience to us. This sermon is not a, you are a bunch of unloving, dirty dogs. This isn't, you should feel really guilty because you're not very kind. Or you should be really guilty because you're impatient. This is a God wants us to grow sermon. This is we have a long way to go. None of us have arrived, but we should take another spiritual step. And so let's consider, church, how can we grow to be more loving? Depend upon the Lord. Trust his Holy Spirit. Love is an enduring desire for another's good that denies self and always seeks to benefit the other person. And that's only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.